The debrief is a production of faculty at the National Security Affairs Department at the U.S. Naval War College. The views presented here are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions of the Department of Defense or any of its components. Welcome everyone to this edition of the Debrief Podcast produced by the National Security Affairs Department at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm Professor Nick Vosdev of the National Security Affairs Department. I'm Professor Jessica Blankshane, also of the National Security Affairs Department. And in our discussions today, we just want to stress that both of us uh, will be discussing these topics in the context of our position as subject matter experts, and we are not speaking in any official capacity for the U.S. Naval War College, the U.S. Navy, uh, or the U.S. government. And so with that, uh, Jess, I thought uh, we're going to be discussing the different perspectives on decision-making. I think many people really have a view of decision-making as that the president wakes up, he makes a decision, uh, the decision is implemented, and it's a, it's a very easy to understand process. Uh, but I think what we'd like our audience to get a feel for is uh, all of the factors, all of the perspectives coming in on decision-making. And we've just come off of the, uh, the Group of 20 Summit, the G20 Summit, uh, at which the president, uh, President Biden, uh, has unveiled this new initiative for connecting uh, the Indian Ocean region through the greater Middle East uh, into the Mediterranean and the Euro-Atlantic region. Uh, and it looks uh, very dramatic. Uh, uh, it uh, certainly promises from a strategy point of view to uh, reorient the politics uh, of the region. Uh, but I think that perhaps our viewers may need to get a better understanding of the president may conceive of something, he may even sign something, but that doesn't necessarily turn it into policy. Uh, and that uh, between signing something at the G20 uh, and having it come to fruition, uh, there may be a whole host of influences on the process. So I thought perhaps uh, you could give uh, our listeners uh, a sense of uh, the processes and perspectives on decision making uh, and how something like this might be impacted. Absolutely, Nick. Uh, and I, you make some great points about the way that we frame and think about these decisions and announcements when they're made. Uh, we'll often talk about President Biden announced this, or even more abstractly, the United States decided on this new policy or took this action, uh, when that masks a lot of what's going on behind the scenes, both, as you say, from the point of policy to having it implemented, but also how we get to the policy in the first place, right? Is this just something... Uh, that President Biden woke up this morning and it seemed like a good idea or it was just inherent in the national interests of the United States that this was obviously what the outcome was going to be. And that's where having some of these analytical perspectives, which are essentially different lenses that we can use to think about how policy is made and implemented, can be really useful. And there's a huge academic literature here that we could go into, but we won't, uh, with many different contributors to coming up to different ways to think about policymaking and implementation. But they can sort of usefully be distilled into a few different buckets of lenses or perspectives on policymaking that take into account different factors. So, of course, at the highest level, there is what we might call the unitary state perspective, which is this view of the United States coming to a summit and declaring policy based on some innate understanding of what the national interests are and having chosen some optimal policy to achieve those interests. 
But of course, as you said, that hides a lot of what's going on. We can also look at individual level factors that affect the decision maker, the president, and also the individuals around that decision maker that will shape their view of what good policy is, how do they know what's likely to achieve interest, what interests do they prioritize, and then even at a different and uh, somewhat more abstract level, the idea of the different organizations and institutions and structures that drive this decision making um, when the president is getting information heading into a summit about to make a decision, where is that information coming from? What options are being put on the table and what organizational and bureaucratic sources are driving those? All of that shapes the decision-making environment. I think that's important to really uh, draw these points out uh, because the unitary state actor perspective, uh, sometimes referred to as the rational actor model, uh, really assumes that people don't matter in some ways. Uh, it would say that, for example, signing this Indo-Abrahamic corridor project at the G20, that any U.S. president, uh, President Biden, President Trump, President Obama, President Bush, would have all done the same thing, and, and then in a way, leadership doesn't matter because the interests are known uh, and the state uh, acts as a single organism and who, who's in it in power uh, doesn't matter. And so I think that that, you know, that is to get people then to look at are there in fact certain enduring U.S. policies, uh, certain enduring interests where we can say uh, it doesn't matter who's in the White House, who sits in Congress, there are just certain things that the U.S. is going to do. And then evaluating whether or not this decision was one of those. On the other hand, as you also said, that you know, the president is a human being, uh, president wakes up, president has a cognitive map uh, and looks at something and, and makes a decision, whether it's cold rational calculus, whether it's a gut decision in, in his gut, he thinks that this is the right thing to do. Uh, but then, as you said, I think a lot of people think, well, that's how decisions are done. The president makes a decision, but then we don't look at the decision as it is influenced going to the president, so coming up the tree, or coming up the pyramid to the president. Um, so are there, were there points uh, on this decision where someone really had reservations but couldn't get those objections to the president? Uh, or someone else around the president in the president's circle wants to steer the president towards a decision? And then the president has reached a decision and now uh, we look at, well, will Congress fund it? How will the bureaucracy interpret it? Uh, will the bureaucracy say this is what the president is focused on today and we better respond or the president will forget about this in a week uh, and there will be no follow-up? So uh, I think that those are all, all good points to bring in. From you as a policy analyst, when you're looking at uh, a decision and you say we have these different perspectives, we have these uh, buckets, these lenses, these nets, whatever metaphor you, you like to use, how do you determine uh, how to prioritize which perspective you think matters most uh, when you look at a decision. What is it that you as an analyst, for those that come to the Naval War College to uh, learn about foreign policy analysis, how should they apply these tools? Is it that all of them are applicable? We just say, well, we don't know, and it's spin the, spin the wheel, and if it lands on the palace politics perspective, that's the one we choose. How do you, how would you advise people to, to use these perspectives? 
That's a really important question, because uh, it's nice to talk about these interesting theories and perspectives on decision making, but if you don't know how to actually use them to explain or predict what's happening in policy, they're not really all that useful. Um, and I think, bottom line, it is important to remember that in almost every case, there's not going to be one right answer, one perspective that explains everything that happened and what's going on. Frequently, it will be really useful to apply multiple or even all of the perspectives, at least at a quick glance, to try to understand different forces that are going on. Um, but there are a few uh, sort of rules or guidelines that you can use that are helpful. Uh, Number one is how much information do you have and how much time do you have to acquire it? If you're looking at a decision made, uh, for example, by the US government and you work for the US government and are a policy analyst and have a lot of information on all of the different processes and actors and how the government works and who the president is and who is influential, uh, then you might be able to dig into some of the more detailed perspectives around palace politics, who's influencing the decision maker, bureaucratic politics, which bureaucracies and organizations had influence in that decision. But in a lot of cases, particularly if you're trying to understand the actions of a foreign government and particularly a not very transparent one, you really don't have a lot to go on. And so in those cases, it might be more productive to stick to some of the high level perspectives, even the unitary state perspective, because they don't require a lot of information to make predictions or to explain policy. So number one is how much information do you have available to use to apply the perspectives? But you can also think, just based on the characteristics of the perspectives, you can use some, uh, you, you can look for some red flags, I guess you might say, of uh, which perspective is most likely to be applicable. So for example, we're talking about uh, summits and big announcements. Often we focus on crisis decision making, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course, one of the most studied decisions from this uh, sort of analytical perspectives mode. Um, those ones, you might be more inclined to look at things like the cognitive perspective, analyzing the, the top decision maker, the palace politics of the people around them, because you know the decision has risen to that level of getting presidential level attention. Where a lot of policy actions that happen don't ever get to the president's desk or anywhere near it. There are things that are done at a much lower level, just sort of the everyday working of government. And so if you're in that arena, something like the organizational process perspective, where you're looking at organizations as actors that have cultures, structures, missions that influence what they do, understanding that will likely be much more informative than what did the president think about an issue that never reached their desk. Um, and then also you can look for uh, long-term or short-term trends in policy in terms of when did policy change. As you were saying, sort of some of these perspectives assume that the decision maker doesn't matter. And so if you're looking at a policy where you've seen a lot of continuity across administrations, that might be a hint that the unitary state perspective, for example, has some explanatory power, where if you're seeing something, uh, for example, like the Iran nuclear deal, where there was an anticipated and then actual significant change in policy with the new administration, that might point at some of the more specific individual or domestic political factors. I'd like to go back and, and really dig a little bit deeper, particularly on organizational process and then its related 
perspectives of bureaucratic politics and sub-bureaucratic politics because I think you've really hit on an issue that is critical but often doesn't get the attention, which is we all focus on the small set of very important or very critical decisions that the president takes. And yet, in the U.S. system, every decision that the executive branch takes, in theory, is at the behest of the president. Uh, and But very few of those decisions are going to come up to the president. And when they, and we've been critical in the past. I mean, one of the critiques of the Carter administration was that President Carter tried to bring so many decisions up to his desk that he was bogged down, even you know, the, the famous anecdote of, of allocating time on the White House tennis courts coming to the president. Uh, and then you say, is that really a good use of his time? But the sense that uh, bureaucracies, organizations within government, um, they are set up by statute, they're set up by executive order, they receive their funding through Congress, uh, they essentially are set up to deal with these day-to-day -day, uh, decisions. Uh, in theory, again, flowing forth from the president, uh, but how in fact does, can we point to uh, where the organizational process really may help us explain why the U.S. does what it does in the world, as opposed to saying, uh, which is so often the default, well, the president wanted it. Um, and yet, with so many decisions, the president may not even be consciously aware of it, and yet a decision happened, something is done. Can you maybe drill a little bit deeper on organizational process? Sure. Uh, this is uh, personally one of my favorite ways to analyze decisions, because I think it is often overlooked, but extremely important. It is just much easier for most people to think in terms of a state doing something or individuals doing something. It's much harder for us to think of what it means for sort of the Department of Defense or the Department of State to, to have, play a role in decision making in this way. Um, and I think one of the really important things here is that when people do pay attention to organizations, it's usually because something went wrong and they're looking for uh, someone or some force to blame for why things didn't go right, right? Why was the policy not the rational one? What threw things off course from what the right policy would have been? And certainly we can find instances where that made sense, where bureaucratic compromises were made. Um, the uh, 1980s in Lebanon is sort of the classic example that we go to with a compromise of different positions on what a deployment should look like, nothing big, you kind of end up in the middle without real agreement that the scope matches the ends you're trying to achieve. We can certainly come up with those sort of examples of compromises that don't actually work out for anyone. Um, but it's also really important to remember that if you don't have these organizations, you don't do anything. Right, exactly the point of if the president simply cannot do everything by themselves, and you need these organizations that specialize in different areas of policy, have different focus, have different expertise to be able to get anything done. There would be no options on the president's table if these organizations weren't generating them. So I think that's really important to keep in mind uh, that we tend to malign these organizations as ruining everything uh, instead of enabling policy. And also there's a tendency to, we talk about bureaucratic politics, uh, where you sit, where you stand is where you sit. Um, this idea of bureaucrats being motivated in some sort of selfish way by what's good for their organization. Um, but as Morton Halpern and others point out, 
you don't have to be that cynical about it to still think that bureaucratic politics is important. You think about people who have frequently spent their entire careers or much of their lives within an organization viewing the world the way that that organization does, and they can absolutely pursue the interests of that organization, um, right? What's good for the Department of Defense? What makes sense from a military point of view? Not because they're selfish, but because they truly believe that that is the way to achieve the national interest, right? That's their piece of the picture and the one that they're going to look at. So I think those are really important caveats when we use these perspectives. But then once you start looking at that level, you really can see how these organizations are shaping policy, both in the case, as you said, of all of these day-to-day goings-on that don't reach the president's desk, uh, the lower-level agreements that are come to, uh, even we've seen incidents where something as simple as approving or denying a visa can create huge uh, policy blowback uh, at a much larger scale. Um, but also in terms of shaping the decisions that do get to the president's desk, in terms of the information, the recommendations, the options that the president is looking at, those don't come from nowhere. They're shaped by the organizational processes and the organizational uh, battles and bargaining over what's actually going to make it to the table. I want to get back in a minute to the point about what reaches the president's table, because I think that's also a very underappreciated dynamic. But I wanted to, before we move on from bureaucratic and sub-bureaucratic politics, I know that sometimes, you know, listeners will think that sounds sort of uh, almost disloyal, right? That why are you bargaining over what the president uh, has uh, asked for or what Congress has passed a law, the president has signed it, uh, what's there to bargain over? And yet, as you were discussing that, that, the president and, and the Congress may want multiple things uh, and that they don't always align. So, uh, for example, just sticking with this question of this new uh, transport and technology corridor, you could say, look, the president wants it. We know that uh, uh, Ambassador Amos Hochstein has been one of uh, President Biden's advisors, Kurt Campbell, uh, really advising about this is important for uh, being able to balance China. Uh, clean energy to to help develop new technologies and all of that. And yet then there's going to be other directives where the president has said human rights matter, uh, democracy matters. And some of the partners for this corridor are neither democracies and have human rights issues. So that uh, it's not a question of uh, the bargaining perhaps being uh, bargaining away what the president wants, but also that organizations, as you said, each have a piece of this which is mandated for them to do, and uh, policy has to then encompass the entire uh, panoply of the issue, uh, and so there has to be some way to bargain about, uh, you know, well, we're supposed to call you out for human rights abuses, but we need you to do something else, and, and how, do you, how do you square essentially those, those bureaucratic circles? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, policy and even law frequently have what we might call slack in them in that they are not always overly specific in terms of what they look like in implementation, uh, but also are open to interpretation. If they weren't, the Supreme Court would have a lot less to do. Um, And so that is frequently the role that these organizations play. Exactly as you said, the president might be trying to accomplish a number of things and how you balance between them comes down to the implementation. And then when we look at laws, things that Congress is directing the executive branch to do, 
really there you get their own compromises of what makes it into the legislation usually has to be vague at some level to get enough people to agree on it. And that's where you get this implementation slack that the organizations can work with. Yeah, and I think that would be a great subject for a separate podcast of going through you know, the legislative process, which again, many people don't quite, uh, they have a very simplified view of how a bill becomes a law. But as you said, ultimately something has to get to the president. The president only has so much time and energy. Uh, only so many people can fit in the Oval Office or in the uh, Roosevelt Conference Room. Uh, access to the president matters. Getting your ideas to the president. If you think someone else's ideas are bad <laughs> or are harmful, you may want to prevent those ideas from getting to the president. Can you talk a bit about what we call the palace politics perspective, which again, for some people sounds uh, it sounds nefarious, it, it's uh, backstabbing, and it's petty rivalries, and yet that's very important because, you know, who makes the case to the president? Where is the president getting uh, information from? Uh, who the president consults? Some of this by statute, but many, many, much of it also just by presidential preference. So maybe you could give us a sense of the you know, the information flow, the gatekeepers around the president, the, the circle of advisors, who advises the president, and, and how does that impact decision making? Absolutely. That's when we talk about bureaucratic politics and some of those influences, we're usually looking at those more the statutory players, the ones who are there uh, through their institutional position and the leverage they have on the basis of the organization that they represent, what it does, what resources it has, those types of things. When we're looking at a palace politics perspective, we're looking usually more at the informal side of things. And it can be a little bit confusing because frequently you have overlap in who the players are. Um, it's the difference between are you looking at the Secretary of State's influence on the decision as Secretary of State leading that bureaucracy versus that they happen to be the president's old roommate and our best friends and really um, have a lot of access there. Or maybe they were political enemies and that could influence the decision making dynamic. Um, so you still have some of those big name players that we might talk about who are uh, in the president's orbit because of their institution, but you can still look at the individual interpersonal dynamics there. But then, as you note, there's a whole other set of players involved. Um, the White House chief of staff is one that we frequently talk about. Um, and we did, we've had some great discussions, particularly when you look at, for example, the Trump administration, when you see turnover yeah. in chiefs of staff, certainly in other administrations too, uh, and the different styles that those individuals bring and how that seems to change the policy environment. Um, are they someone who is managing access to the president very carefully, keeping people out? Or are they someone who's just sort of, it's a free for all and anyone can access the president? Those are going to be very different decision-making environments. Uh, we often also talk a lot about the national security advisor uh, who, again, is there, has a position as the national security advisor, but it's one that is much more how the president uses it that determines how influential it is. Um, and also as someone who does not have to be Senate confirmed in most cases, in the same way as the big bureaucratic players, the president often has more selection, more say over who that person is. It's easier to change them out. Uh, and so we see differences based on who the national security advisor is in how policy processes are run. 
But then, of course, you also get a number of people involved who might not have any formal position at all, whether they're family members, friends, old business associates who will get these sort of TikTok stories from the press about how a decision went down and you find out, oh, they just happened to have lunch with so-and-so the day before the decision was made. And some of those people can still be quite influential even if they have no official position. Yeah, and I think that's important, uh, as you noted, family members, friends, uh, people who are direct presidential appointees, and that presidents sometimes don't like to be managed by their chiefs of staff and by others. They want to be able to reach out. You know, famously, uh, uh, President Obama uh, refused to surrender his BlackBerry uh, when he became president. Uh, people want didn't feel that that was uh, the Secret Service, by following its organizational process, said. Uh, you know, the president's communications need to be secured, and, and President Obama uh, said, I have friends that I want to be able to reach, and I want them to be able to reach me without going through gatekeepers, and I'm going to be keeping my, keeping my BlackBerry. Um, and then, of course, you know, President Trump with Twitter, uh, but also, as you said, with family members, right, that uh, am I an advisor to the president, or am I uh, or a cabinet official, or am I the president's brother, or am I the president's daughter? Uh, and it can be difficult to separate where, where your institutional role uh, ends and where your uh, familial role or, or private role begins. And I think that that, that is, is, is quite important. As you're talking about the circle and you know, who's around the president, who does the president consult, I think it really brings us to maybe the last of the perspectives or circling back to uh, this perspective, which is the cognitive perspective of the decision maker. Uh, switching gears from the G20 summit uh, to the overall tenor of U.S. policy uh, in the last uh, two years over Ukraine, um, what President Biden has done vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine, his concerns about Russia, it seems that there is, uh, you can really detect a certain cognitive perspective. This is a president who uh, lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's not something he just read about. He, he, he was lived through it. Uh, and had those worries about it. Uh, he was elected to the Senate uh, at the height of the Cold War um, and was in the Senate uh, all through uh, the, the, the main points of the second half of the Cold War. Uh, and that it does seem to have an exercise uh, on his thinking. He is um, he's cautious about escalation. He is very concerned about uh, nuclear questions uh, that uh, a president of a different generation might be uh, have a different perspective on. Uh, Graham Allison, uh, whom we both know and, uh, and mentor and influence to us both, uh, has noted that there is a very clear division. He dates it to base, basically around 45 years old. If you're over, and it's not hard and fast, but if you're over 45, you tend to be more cautious on nuclear issues. If you're under 45, did not really live through the Cold War, don't have much memory of it. Uh, it's not that you're not concerned, but it doesn't exercise the same cognitive frame on you. Um, and, and so is that something that we should be looking at? Is it, is it appropriate to say that, yes, a uh, President Biden has approached Ukraine uh, differently than perhaps maybe a President Elizabeth Warren would have, or a President Pete Buttigieg, or a President Kamala Harris, based upon experiences, background, worldview? I mean, how much does that play a role in decision making? Absolutely. And that's where... Um it gets a little bit complicated when we're trying to do this sort of cognitive analysis of policymaking because there's so much going on there. And frequently we think about it in 
two sort of different buckets where one, when we talk about doing a sort of cognitive analysis, we're looking at uh, some of the behavioral economics, uh, psychology, political psychology studies that give us some insight into common factors across people in terms of how most people think, how they frame decisions, how the framing of decisions affect what they choose, those sorts of big picture dynamics. And those are helpful, but they really work in concert with some of these specific factors you mentioned about who the actual individual is, right? To understand how these cognitive dynamics are at play for any individual person, you need to understand some of their formative influences. Um, analogies we talk about a lot, right? As a, a way that people think and reason. And so understanding based on who someone is, both how old they are, what they lived through, what salient experiences are going to be for them, that helps you understand what analogies they're going to use, right? Frequently we talk about sort of who is guided by the Munich appeasement analogy and who is guided by the Vietnam quagmire analogy and trying to understand uh, which is more likely, those types of dynamics. Um, and so certainly that's where we try to understand how different decision makers might make different decisions. And then of course you also have to layer in on top of that their, um, the way that they view a problem, certainly we hope they are viewing it in terms of what is the United States problem here that they're trying to solve. But realistically, they're also thinking, what is my problem that I'm trying to solve as the president who has to be worried about things like re-election, not losing Congress, what's their historical legacy going to be? And think about those bigger term factors that might shift their framing of the decision a bit away from what we might think of as sort of the unitary state, purely U.S. interest framing of the decision. Finally, finally just to uh, wrap up our conversation uh, and to, to make it uh, uh, relevant perhaps to the audience, right? So someone might say, this is all very interesting. You know, these, these perspectives, the unitary state, the cognitive, bureaucratic politics, organizational process, sub-bureaucratic politics, and fine, I'll be a better informed news consumer. When next time I read about a uh, decision, uh, I may have a better insight. But really, uh, bringing it down to people who are engaged in a pre-professional course of study uh, in the national security field, why, why does this matter? Uh, what's the takeaway for someone who says, so if I know that it, the president's cognitive framework drives a decision on this issue, what does that matter to me? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, I mean, as much as it is very satisfying to have students come and say, oh, I read this article the other day and it all makes sense to me now because I understand these perspectives. Um, this is a really important question when we think about educating national security professionals uh, particularly given some of the concerns that come up sometimes around uh, proper normative civil military relations, the role that not just military officers, but also civilian bureaucrats who are not elected, what is their role in policymaking in a democratic process? Um, these are things that we have to think about. But I would say that even for someone who is 
somewhere in this policymaking establishment where they are not the senior decision maker, they are not the one who is either making the call or, you know, whispering in the president's ear, understanding these dynamics is really important. Um, not at all to say that military officers should be shading their recommendations based on politics or what they think is politically feasible. That's not their job. But still, understanding that context is very important when trying to look at what is the likely U.S. policy going to be. Um, what do I expect to come out of this situation? Having an awareness of these factors can really better prepare someone to operate in that environment. And I think going back to some of the things we were talking about before, too, I think it can be really helpful. There's a tendency to dismiss anything outside of what we might call the unitary state analysis as illegitimate, selfish, wrong. Uh, and I think having a better understanding of these dynamics can help national security professionals to think about the bigger picture and understand that uh, the national interest and ideas about what best serves it do not come down on some stone tablet that it's obvious the right thing to do. These are politically and societally constructed ideas, and there are a lot of legitimate influences on which direction policy goes. Thank you, and I think that we've heard from so many senior military and civilian leaders who've come through how important it is for people who will be advising, who will be part of this process, to, as you said, to understand the context. So I hope uh, our audience today uh, has a clearer understanding of at least some of the context. We'd like to thank you uh, for joining us and stay tuned for future editions of The Debrief.